have had a really, really, really busy uh, last couple of days uh, between managing databases with mail servers, uh, you know, taking care of some MailChimp issues, and communicating with people uh, within the Manana Nomas network. It's been a real busy couple of days, which is unique because right now here we are in the middle of this COVID crisis and people are dealing with how do I work from home? How do I work remotely? Who's essential? Who goes to work? Who doesn't go to work? Um, I will tell you when, I haven't been to the store in a long time, <laughs> but, but when I uh, was going to the store, I would see the same uh, checkout people, you know, checking customers out. And I kept thinking, how are we all under quarantine? And they're touching and breathing and speaking and seeing the whole neighborhood all the time. And, and they're not sick. Uh, I'm trying not to burden myself with these types of critical thinking thoughts because I know that the right thing to do is to uh, conform a little bit and to uh, do what needs to be done as far as staying home, taking care of family, being healthy, and reaching out to you folks and hopefully adding some value along the way. Uh, here we are, we are in leadership sex, uh, session six. Uh, so this is the sixth chapter in the John C. Maxwell Leadership book. Uh, if you've watched or listened to any of the other podcasts or mastermind sessions on this book, I hope that you pick up how passionate I am about how important I think this content is right now. Like, if not now, when? And if not, and if not us, you know, who, right? It, it, it's how in the world are we going to uh, grab the bull by the horns and come out of this thing on the other side better for it? right? And that's huge to me is, is thinking of, you know, even if there's a speed bump in the way, right? How do we get past that speed bump and improve ourselves and, and develop ourselves along the way? Um, the question has come up, uh, not here, okay, but I do want to make sure that I answer it. Uh, these mastermind sessions, they're free. I'm not making a dime off of this. Uh, in the initial invites, I put the links on how to order John C. Maxwell Leadership off of Amazon. Uh, I'll admit to you now uh, that we're into this for a few weeks. That may have been a mistake. Uh, I am understanding now that Amazon is postponing shipments of things like books uh, in favor of shipping things that are important, like medical supplies, things like that. So uh, if you've ordered a book for this through Amazon and it hasn't arrived yet, it may be weeks before it does. So you may want to look at other options for you know, getting your hands on a copy of this. This book to me is, is amazing. I've got a pretty good John Maxwell library. I'm a big fan of his, uh, and I'm part of the John Maxwell team. Uh, we do speaker, uh, speaking, coaching, leadership, things like that. But this book, like I said, really jumps off the page. Now, just to recap some of the things that we've already discussed, um, you know, we're, we're five minutes in, uh, again, if you see the link to join the Zoom conversation, jump in live. I'd love to have the interaction of people jumping in live. Uh, if you are watching this on Facebook Live and you like the direction, you like the flow, you like the energy that, that this book review is bringing, uh, you know, as a mastermind, share this as a watch party with your group, with your friends, with your page. And, you know, hopefully my goal here is to add as much value to as many people as possible through this time. I don't have uh, like this, I can't go out and help people build houses and things like that. I'm not that guy, uh, but I can add value to people through these tools and through the gifts that I feel I've been given. And I hope that you find value in it and hopefully enough to share or to maybe bounce the podcast around or something like that. Um, in some of the content that we've already shared, 
right out of the right out of the gate the first session we covered why every leader needs to leader shift right and leader shift is this idea it's a made up word by john but it's you know leader shift is the idea of you're not just babysitting anymore right you're not just a manager you've got to be able to move at a rapid pace the pace of our world is continuing to increase and if you're going to be a successful leader in that increase then you you you've got to be ready to shift you've got to be ready for change you cannot you cannot grow without change and you cannot expect success without embracing change right so why every leader needs to lead or shift that came up then we talked about soloist to conductor uh he was using a musical metaphor right talking about you know a, a concert violinist uh, possibly becoming the conductor and what the challenges might be from being the superstar that can make any music they want at any time with their instrument to somebody that has to work through many artists with many instruments to get the results that they need right and so there was soloist to conductor uh, after that we talked about goals to growth uh, that was one of the passion points for me. I may have gotten a little emphatic during that, that session, but goals to growth was don't concentrate so much on um, one, two, and three, right? Concentrate on one, two, and three as a group, but one, two, and three all the way to 10, right? As, as a growth pattern. Think of it as a lifestyle change. Um, the way that I liken this chapter to uh, courses that I have on the Manana Nomas Academy would be like, I have this course called Behavioral Based Goals. Behavioral Based Goals is about making a, a lifestyle change to go in a direction towards growth. So the example I used, because a lot of what I do online has to do with um, fitness and how it relates to your fiscal abilities, right? So physical fitness relating to fiscal success. Uh, if you were to say, well, my goal is to lose 10 pounds, that's a goal, right? That's a goal-based goal. That's an activity, a task-based goal, right? My goal is to lose 10 pounds. Uh, a behavioral-based goal would be, you know what? I need to change my eating and drinking habits to help with my weight loss. And then that becomes, you know, a lifestyle change that moves towards, you know, personal growth, not just getting to that next step or that next task, right? Uh, then uh, after that, we discussed perks to price. And perks to price, I thought was pretty good. Perks to price covered um, what are the perks of leadership versus the sacrifice that leadership requires, okay? And a lot of people focus on the perks of leadership and they don't like to focus so much on the sacrifice it takes to be an effective, successful leader. Uh, there can be leaders out there that are relying on positional-based authority, you know, people that are in the, the step one or step two of the five steps of leadership. Um, but realistically, I wouldn't classify those as successful leaders. Successful leaders lead people that want to be led, right? A successful leader is somebody that you've led somebody, you know, not just through position, but through, you know, emotional tie relationship, right? Where they, they want to be led by you. They want to follow you. And then they want to produce for you and for your team. You know, that, that's how, you know, leaders progress. And so that, that was real important, talking about perks to price. After perks to price, we talked about pleasing people to challenging people. And that was just two days ago. And so if you're following this on a, um, you know, on a session by session live basis, you know, it was only two days ago that we discussed, you know, the shift in going from trying to please people. Like if you're in charge of a team of people, is it your job to keep everybody on the team happy? 
or is it your job to make decisions based on what's good for the company, what's good for the individual, and then lastly, what's good for you, right? And so we discussed, you know, some of the challenges that come with that and some of the benefits along the way. Now, chapter six is interesting for me. It's talking about maintaining to creating, and, and he calls it the abundance shift. This is a, one of these chapters that John writes where me as, as your tour guide taking you through this book, um, this is one of those chapters where I go, oh man, I think that I could uh, knock this out in 20 minutes. I could knock this out in half an hour. And then as I read more and more of the content, I think to myself, uh-oh, uh, there's more to this than what I thought I was getting myself into. In fact, uh, when I started going through these pages, I thought, oh, this is easy. I could knock this out. Yeah, yeah absolutely. This is and then I flip the page. I'm like, oh, he keeps going. There's more. Uh-oh. And then I go back to where he says, it's the abundance shift. And I'm like, John's putting a lot of, he's putting a lot of energy. He's putting a lot of weight on that title right there, right? Maintaining to creating the abundance shift. Uh, he says, a quote from Vince Lombardi right at the beginning, it says, the joy is in creating, not maintaining. Now, I'm on page 103 if you're following along in the book, but uh, Vince hit me right on the head right there and ask anyone that worked with me in a corporate environment, when it comes to building a new project, man, I'm in both feet, I'm in, you know, waist deep, I'm in. Uh, you know, you want a new website? Bam, got your website. Here we go. How do you want to fill it in? And I get excited about new projects and new teams and new initiatives and, and, and I get just totally sold out to it. Right. And you know, there's different personality traits on, you know, who you put on your team and you want to have a good blend of people on your team. You know, if you, when I was the trainer at Ducati, I was a one man team. So I didn't have the benefit of saying, okay, well, if, if this is, you know, if these are my four quadrants of personalities, you know, here's a, here's a leader, here's an entertainer, you know, here's an analyst, here's someone that's, you know, really focused on the numbers. And here's somebody that's super loyal that can, you know, follow a process through to the bitter end. Um, if you don't have that, it can be really difficult to, to think of yourself from those two perspectives of, am I maintaining something or am I creating something? For instance, when I was at Ducati, I got excited to take a lot of the training online and put a lot of the theory online and build an online training website for that company. And that was awesome. And I got to make content and make videos and build a studio and do all kinds of cool things. Uh, but then about two, three years into that project, it came to the point where like, you got to maintain this thing. You have to update people's user accounts and pull user reports and look at, you know, report cards and, you know, use it as this ongoing tool. And while I had the ability to do it, it wasn't my strength. What would have been really great then would have been able to have like a virtual assistant that had the personality trait or the work style to take over on those maintenance issues so that I could keep building and keep being creative and keep elevating Ducati's training up higher, another level, another level, another level, right? Uh, transition that to my time at Suzuki. At Suzuki, I had a team of people and it was fantastic because we would have an idea, we would launch an idea, and then that idea would filter through the ranks, right? Somebody would be in charge of, of uh, text, someone would be in charge of you know, pictures and graphics, someone would be in charge of animation. And, and it was one of those things where you could um, be a project manager and you could leverage your people's skill set in a way that met the company needs 
best. And that was pretty cool. Um, what's also really cool about having a team of people is, you know, everybody has a season and sometimes those seasons are great and sometimes those seasons aren't so great. But when you have a team of people, you're able to tweak the workload, you know, around those seasons a little bit and you can leverage people that have a high productivity, um, hopefully without burning them out, but you can leverage people with a, with a high productivity and, and keep things in a creative mode. I love being in the creative mode. John here in the book, chapter six, uh, he does a little bit of talking at the beginning about what it's like to be in the maintenance mode, which John is not a fan of either. Um, but it, uh, so I'll start at the beginning, page 103. You know, without making this all about Kurt today, let's, let's get back to the book. It says, have you ever thought about the expectations your profession or industry places on you? Are people in your leadership, are people in your leadership position expected to hold the line, maintain the course, change direction, get out of the box, or blow up the box, right? When you're in the interview process and the company's trying to hire you, um, very rarely will they talk about, we just need someone to come in here and toe the line, man. We just need people to maintain processes, you know. Uh, this is the way we've always done it. It works for us. Ain't no need in fixing something that ain't broke. No, that's not how the interview process goes. The interview process goes with, you know, how do you feel about new initiatives? How do you go, you know, tell us three successful things from your last project that, you know, could be of value to this new project, right? And so they, they talk in these terms. But if you don't understand the company culture before you say yes and walk in the door, you may be in for a rude awakening because the culture inside is going to be this is the way we've always done it. Ain't no need in fixing something that ain't broke, right? And then you end up in this weird maintenance mode. Uh, John said that this has happened when he started in churches, right? He noticed that uh, when he started taking over in churches, he noticed that they honored people that stayed the longest. Like when you went to like a pastor's conference or something like that, it says, um, he says, what struck me most was how traditional everything was. The highlight of the meeting was when the pastor of the year was recognized. For the first time, it struck me the people honored were always the ones with the longest tenure, the leaders who were faithful, the maintainers, right? And I, in the corporate world, I think of that as like the guy with the gold watch, right? There's a dude that stayed at the company for 25 years. He might not have done a whole lot. He may have answered the phone. He may have, you know, ran a few meetings, but he stayed the 25 years. He stayed the course and he stayed safe and he got the gold watch. Um, staying safe isn't really on the menu for a lot of folks in today's modern world. And, and I don't want to say one's good, one's bad, because the world needs safe people to maintain processes that are already established. But from a leadership position, which is what this book is about, from a leadership position, uh, you know, you need to grow yourself in, in a way that's like you're, you're able to take risks, you're able to move forward and try new things and, and be inventive. Um, John says when you're looking at making changes, uh, when you're looking at being creative, he said there's an old saying, don't tear down a fence until you know why it's there. I think that's funny, right? Like farmer talk, right? There's, there's an old saying, don't tear down a fence until you know why it's there. Uh, but he also says that within his organization, he wasn't someone that was itching to tear down fences, but he was quick to ask questions. Uh, he was very quick to ask why a fence had been put up and whether it still needed to be there or not. And I found, you know, 
retrospectively as I read the book and I thought about some of the ways that I behaved in conference rooms and stuff, um, I may have been joking or I may have been, uh, my, my expression may have been uh, elevated, but in my mind, I was always thinking, why does the company do this? Why is this an established process? Why are we continuing you know, to go down this road that's shown limited success or has a high expense or uh, has very little return on investment, things like that. And these are the things that I would think of and go, okay, well, how can we change this? How can we alter this? And I might not want to rip the fence down, but I might want to alter where the fence is, right? Might want to change some things around. So as he opens the chapter and it talks about there's a maintenance mode and a creative mode and you have to figure out kind of where you're at on that scale. John does what John does best. You put everything into kind of sections, right? He says, recognize what zone you're in. It says, one, the coasting zone. Well, the coasting zone is easy, right? It says, I do as little as possible. So think to your corporate environment and think of somebody that you see in leadership who's not really taking the initiative with anything, right? They're Maybe they're waiting for retirement. Maybe they're waiting until their wife has a baby. Maybe they're waiting for, I don't know, anything, right? but they're coasting. It's the coasting zone. Then there's the comfort zone, right? Uh, I do what I've always done. <laughs> the comfort zone, the, you know, ain't no need to fix nothing ain't broke, right? So that's the comfort zone. Then there's the challenge zone, right? Now, now lucky for you, there's only four zones. I'll put my hands over here. There's only four zones. So I attempted to do, I attempt to do what I haven't done before. That's the challenge zone, three. I attempt to do what I haven't done before. And then four, to me, this is my goal zone. Um, and it's just a personal thing, right? I'm working with Manana Nomas right now. I'm trying to lend as much value as I can to power sports and marine dealers, help them improve their service business. I've been online talking about this COVID crisis being a blessing to the power sports and marine industry at the dealer level since it broke out. This is an opportunity for, uh, for disruption. This is an opportunity for dealers to evaluate and change their customer interaction processes and improve things for the better, right? And what better time than through a crisis to throw a, a monkey wrench into things and change the whole thing, right? So to me, it's like the creative zone's my goal and I try and get other people to come along and join the party with me, right? So the four zones was the coasting zone, the comfort zone, the challenge zone, and the creative zone. It says, to which zone do you naturally gravitate? And you don't have to raise your hand or, or jump in on a poll or anything like that. I was really tempted to do a, an online poll through the Facebook Live to see, uh, you know, what zone you thought that you would self-identify with. But I wasn't sure how anonymous it would stay. So uh, I wanted to stick with that. It says the good news is that you have the ability to choose a different zone than your natural zone. That to me is huge. Huge, huge, huge. Um, when I first started teaching on personality traits and how to grow a, a really good team. Um, I have a course for this now on the Manana Nomas Academy called Building Teams with Love. But when I first started teaching on it, I would talk about like there was this book called Wired This Way. Wired This Way. Yeah. Wired This Way. And it was nice. had four different colors on a different palette and people would identify their personality traits and their teammates' personality traits. But I found that that work was more like psychoanalyst. It was more like trying to identify somebody's personality and shoehorn them into a spot based on their personality like it couldn't be changed. Then uh, I evolved through a process working in tandem with Volkswagen and Ducati. 
and we had come up with a program uh, called Real, R-E-A-L. And that's actually kind of what I did on the board there, right? So uh, there's rulers, entertainers, analysts, and loyalists. And uh, without going too deep into any of that, the main bend there was it's not necessarily personality, it's work style. And so if your work style doesn't match your position, you have the ability to learn different styles or different tendencies or different behaviors, although they may conflict with your personality a bit, if that makes sense, right? I didn't want to be in the psychoanalyzation business. I wanted to be in the, in the position coach business. And so um, tweaking that a little bit made all the difference in the world to me. Now I've got a friend, uh, Rod. Rod is fantastic. He has a company called Perfect Match Hire. And while I didn't really intend for these to be commercials, his business, his whole business, as far as I can, from my perspective looking in, is he will work with corporations to figure out what the perfect match is for an open position or for a position within their company. And then he helps filter applicants so that the HR department doesn't have to interview 300 people. They only have to interview the 20 that might really apply based on their, their core, right? How a person is hardwired to perform at the utmost productivity for a certain position. Um, he's able to help companies uh, get through that. And if you guys need a warm introduction to Rod or something like that, hit me up on the comments or, you know, jump in on the money on the Moss page or whatever, and I'll get you guys connected because that's a, that's, that's a huge thing. If it's a big, like if you're monster energy drinks and you're getting 1500 applications, you know, for some position in the office, what a boon would it be for you if you could have the, uh, the core essence of what that job is, a scientific example of what that job is and who the perfect person is for it, and then have a system that would filter out, you know, those thousand applicants to say, okay, well, here's 150 possibles. And then instead of interviewing a thousand people, you got to interview 150. Think of that in terms of lost man hours and things like that from an HR perspective. That's huge. And that doesn't even take into account if you put the right person in the right job, you get the most amount of production and the, the most amount of creativity, which is what we're talking about today. You get the highest level of creativity and, and then you get the lowest amount of turnover. So you're getting the highest production at the best cost with lowering your big picture expenses as far as employee turnover and training go and onboarding. So it's a whole big deal. So here I am, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you how wrong I was at the beginning when I said there wasn't enough in this chapter to last an hour. Uh, as you can see, I'm gonna struggle to get this chapter covered in an hour. But we get through that. So identify which of the four zones you're in. And then he says, there's mental blocks that can keep you out of the creative zone. Well, the creative zone's your goal. So if there's blocks keeping you from getting to your goal, we need to know what those blocks are and how we might be able to creatively think to get out of them, right? Uh, use some critical thinking and go, okay, well, this is how I'm hardwired. How can I get past this obstacle, right? That's the way I'm thinking of this. So mental block one is you got to find the right answer. It's wrong to believe that there's only one right answer to any question. And I, I got to tell you, um, <laughs> Joe stole at Ducati and, and man, it's all coming to me today. Uh, Joe stole at Ducati. I would be teaching electrical diagnosis and Joe goes, no, that's not how you do that. That's not how you do that at all. And then he would have three different ways to do what I was just teaching. Um, 
sometimes we would agree to disagree, right? And that's okay. That's what professionals do. Uh, I didn't argue with them or call him an idiot, right? We just agreed to disagree. Um, and thankfully, to my knowledge, he doesn't call me an idiot behind my back either. Um, I have a, also a, just so much respect for people in this field and what they do. Um, Joe had a really great critical thinking brain when it came to some of this stuff. And he would say, well, you know, you're telling them to measure, you know, positive and negative and looking for amps and volt differences or whatever, right? And he'd say, well, no, but if you know that the system has this, then you can look for, you know, resistance draw or something like that. And so I'd be teaching one way to do something. And Joe would say, well, no, you can go it from the back end too. And back and forth and back and forth. There's not always one right answer. So you have to get rid of that mental block that there's only one way to do something, right? Mental block number two, it's not logical, right? You're going to tell yourself that's not logical. Sometimes we don't need to be logical. Sometimes we just need to be creative. Think about, you know, <laughs> think about things that were in movies 30, 40, 50 years ago that are common now. Like this wasn't logical in 1930, right? But there were sci-fi cartoons and, and comic strips that had made reference to personal communication devices. So although it wasn't logical, it was possible, right? And now we live in the world of possible. Uh, it says here, Albert Einstein said, imagination is more important than knowledge. Knowledge is limited. Imagination encircles the world, right? Imagination turns possibilities into reality, and it's willing to take the leaps that logic can't. I encourage imagination whenever possible. In a corporate world, sometimes production is key because you have to get something done by a certain time. But when the deadline is not looming over you like a sledgehammer on an anvil, uh, that's a great moment to, to peel back a step with your team, get creative, maybe have a brainstorming session, and then maybe see if there's something more productive or better that you can create with that allotted time. Works out really, really good. Uh, mental block number three, follow the rules, right? <laughs> People say the only good thing about a rule is rules are made to be broken, right? So it says most revolutionary ideas have been disruptive violations of set rules, right? Most revolutionary ideas have been disruptive violations of set rules. Back in the early 2000s, I started an e-commerce website. Everybody thought I was crazy. And I was selling power sports accessories, uh, jackets, hats, boots, you know, helmets, things like that. And back in the early 2000s, companies did not want to give me access to their catalogs, their wholesale pricing, their products, because I didn't have a brick and mortar store, right? Because I didn't have an address to ship boxes to um, with a window, right? <laughs> that I didn't have a showroom that would put things on display. So they didn't want to do business with me. And I had to deal with a lot of uh, level B, level C, level D players in getting new products for my virtual storefront. Excuse me. Well, now take a look at it. Here we are 20 years later. And, you know, Amazon, people are dying to get their product on Amazon, right? Some kind of e-commerce example. Um, I think about Von Concepts Performance Magazine. Again, that was like a 2001-2002 adventure, trying to get race passes to do uh, press coverage of races and then promote them online right away. Um, people like Cycle News were just starting to do the online coverage, uh, and I was out there trying to do this, and I had to explain to so many people 
what an online magazine was and how I thought that it would add value to the sport. And now I look at like asphalt and rubber and, you know, I think Jensen does a great job with that property, but back then, no, you know, you, you had to follow the rules. If you weren't in print, you didn't count. Right. And so most revolutionary ideas are disruptive violations of set rules. Absolutely. And sometimes it hurts, man, when your timing is ahead of others, it's painful because you know that you know that you know that you're right and no one's listening and you have to have patience and perseverance. And I'll tell you, when I was younger, I didn't have patience and perseverance. And so there was a lot of times where I gave up and I'm looking back at this now, I gave up right before it would have been awesome, right? So the Manana Nomas training example I'm doing for Power Sports and Marine right now, I took that completely virtual before the COVID breakout. Everything's online. Training's online, the courses are online, the, uh, I do live support calls online with guys on Zoom. And uh, you know, we did a beta test that worked out really, really well. Pardon me. And then this COVID crisis breaks out. And for the first time in forever, it feels like the rest of the world is forced to work in my timeline and jump into something that, you know, I, I have a vision for that I think is going to work. So I'm, I'm relatively hopeful about that. Uh, number four was a mental block. Avoid ambiguity. It says life is complex. It's messy. It's contradictory. And it's paradoxical. Why in the world would we think we should or could avoid ambiguity? There is never one fixed way to understand something. Everything can be understood in more than one way. So avoid ambiguity, right? Mental block number five, failure is bad. Well, that's a lie straight from the pit of hell. Uh, failure is the first step to success in many, many things that we do. So to me, um, being willing to fail, being willing to make mistakes, being willing to learn from failure mistakes is, is key. We already covered that in previous talks. Mental block six, don't be foolish. I've uh, been told I've been foolish quite often. Uh, to stand up is to stand out. You have to stick your neck out and put your head above the crowd. Uh, if others don't at first understand or accept you, so what? All the great dreamers looked foolish to someone. Uh, my last company, there was a saying, the protruding nail always gets hammered, right? That's a Japanese saying. Uh, the protruding nail always gets hammered. Well, if you're someone that likes to stick up, someone that sticks out, someone that has new ideas, someone that is energetic, well, then it's obvious that you aren't the best fit in a socially conservative environment. But uh, some would say, don't be foolish. And then I would say, I, I can't stifle what I got in here. I, I got to I gotta give, right? So that's there. Mental block number seven is if you say, I'm not creative. That to me is one of the saddest statements that someone would make. Now, Michelle Cunningham that jumped in the live call a couple weeks ago, she's an artist and she's very, very creative. Um, uh, in fact, she was just laid off. And so if you need a contact for someone that can draw anything you're thinking or draw anything that you say or make a great painting or, uh, you know, convert your graphics into animation or make e-learning for you on you know, articulate or anything else, I guess. I, the woman's fantastic. But um, it would break her heart to say, I'm not creative. Because like me, she also believes that everybody is creative in some way. As children, we're all born creative. It, it, even the book says that. It says, uh, let me get here. I love what blogger Hugh McLeod said about this. Everyone is born creative. Everyone is given a box of crayons in kindergarten. Then you get, then you hit puberty 
they take the crayons away and replace them with dry, uninspiring books on algebra, history, etc. Being suddenly hit years later with the creative bug is just a wee voice telling you, I'd like my crayons back, please. And uh, I got to tell you that sometimes it's just nice to grab some crayons and a big sheet of paper and just scribble. And I'm not a great artist, but it doesn't mean I'm not creative. Don't limit yourself or don't, don't accuse yourself of being something that's not true. Um, take the time, get in the quiet, put on the music, whatever it takes to get in your zone and find the creativity you need to find that success. So once you get over your mental blocks, you know, once you've established the zone that you're in and you get over your mental blocks, well, then you got to figure out, well, what are some creative principles to learn and live by? Uh, one is to build a creative culture. I've covered that. I'm not going to beat that to death. Um, but if you don't, if, if you don't invest in a creative culture, if you don't allow people the space and the comfort and you don't give them the right, you know, leadership quality, you don't, you don't sacrifice yourself enough as a leader to give them, to add the value to them that they need to feel creative. You've stifled that and you've, you've gypped yourself in the process, right? So build a creative culture, let people be creative, let people have ideas. Now, sometimes you might have someone on your team that's just so full of ideas and doesn't produce a thing. That's not healthy. You know, at some point, there's got to be productivity. There's got to be efficiency. There's got to be a return on investment. Um, if you've got someone that comes to you with 20 ideas and 19 out of 20 ain't going to fly and you don't have patience for the last idea, it might be time to look at somebody else to slide into that spot. Um, but, you know, you got to build a creative culture and give people a shot. Uh, to do that, you fuel passion, you celebrate ideas, you foster autonomy. This is an interesting thing to me. Um, we've all had a micromanaging supervisor at one point somewhere in your life. You know, whether it was you were working at Burger King and, and the beep would go off and you didn't pull the fries off in the first three seconds, the guy freaked out, right? There, there's micromanaging somehow somewhere in everybody's life. So we all know what we don't want. We all know that there, there's, a, there's a tendency we want to feel like a grown person. We want to feel like we're in charge of something, right? And so uh, George S. Patton said, never tell people how to do things. Tell them what to do, and they will surprise you with their ingenuity, right? Um, in a lot of respects, I believe that. I think that in the corporate environment, there are certain standards that would need to be upheld, uh, you know, like protection of data and things like that. So legally, there's things that you have to dot the I's, cross the T's, and follow a process for. Um, but stay away from micromanagement as much as you can and let people, you know, be a little autonomous in how they address their workload. Uh, always encourage courage, you know, get people to, to be okay with taking a risk. You know, if you, if you cut somebody's finger off because they make a mistake and then you cut another finger off when they make a second mistake, you think they're going to risk coming to you with a third mistake? No, no. So you, you got to, you got to let people experiment a little bit and you got to let them have a little courage and the more courage they build, um, the better the results could be, right? They can knock one out of the park for you. Uh, minimize hierarchy, right? So if you got too many layers of, of, of approvals to go through to get something done, it really takes the flow out of it, right? And I know that one firsthand. When you got to get six or seven people to sign off on a piece of paper over a three-week period to be able to go spend $1,000 on a project, by the time you get the $1,000 to spend, you don't even want to do the project, right? So uh, minimize hierarchy and, and BS as much as you can. And if it has to be there, 
take the burden yourself as the leader and, and try not to let that energy filter down to your people because that's caustic. Reduce the rules, fail forward. We talked about failure. Failure is totally good. And then start small. And, and this is important. I'm guilty of this. So that is why I say it's important because it's for me. Uh, too often, we want huge breakthroughs and innovations when we should be looking for small ones. If you want one great idea, look for a lot of good ideas. If you want to create something significant, build it in small increments and do that consistently and you make creative progress. The way that I liken that, that caveat there, because I'm guilty of that. I will say, hey, I'm going to launch this training program and I'm going to affect, you know, 1500 service writers and I'm going to this and I'm going to that. And there's all these things that I think I'm going to knock out of the park. But let's be realistic. You know, I got to have a goal and then I have to have where I'm at, right? So I have a snapshot and I have the long-term goal. And then it's all of the little steps along the way that get me where I want to go. And all those little steps are the small ideas, right? And so a lot of times if I'm working with a team of people, you know, I'll have different members of the team that are responsible for those different steps. And so not everything falls on my shoulders, rather it's a, it's a team experience. And then we can build something really cool together, which is fun. Uh, the second section says, make everything better. So the first section was build a creative culture. I'm up to page 111 by now, if you're following along in the book. Two is make everything better. You've probably heard the expression, it doesn't get any better than this. Well, I have news for you, it can get better. Um, <laughs> the other thing is, uh, well, it can't get any worse. Uh, you don't want to say that because it can always get worse too, right? So knowing that it can always get worse, um, know that it can always get better. And constantly work on trying to drive that forward. Um, John's got a thing that he talks about on page 112 called the 1080 and 10 rule. Um, normally if I were working with a group live, I would say, Hey, do you guys want to cover this? And then see if that's something they really want to go through or not. But basically what it is, he says he has a process uh, for making things better that he uses with the team. He calls it a 10-80-10 rule. And whenever we start a task or project, the first thing I do is identify the target, which represents 10% of the process. So now you only got 90% of the process to do, right? And so the first 10% focuses on what you want to accomplish. And then 80 is actually doing it to, to get it through production. And then 10 is kind of like reviewing the process your team does and looking for a way to improve that process, to make it better, to perfect it, right? So he talks about a 10-80-10 rule. Uh, number three says make plans, but look for options. Now, during this COVID crisis, this is one of those things that I think just jumps right off the page. So many companies sent people home two weeks ago and said, oh, we're going to take everything virtual. Don't worry about it. It's good. We got it. And they sent everybody home with a laptop and said, okay, you guys are virtual now. And people are at home going, I don't know what to do. Like VPN access to a shared drive to get to a file. Great. Now, how do we have a meeting? Now, how do we have a sales meeting? Now, how do we take these four people, put them in a meeting, but then have a breakout for these two people to go talk about something else? You know, these companies weren't aware of Zoom or, you know, WebEx as real functioning virtual tools. They used them as like conference room add-ons at the office. So it, it's very difficult for them to convert and, and get to, you know, these changing times. And from a leadership perspective, this change has to happen not over the course of three years or five years, but it has to happen now. They got to be online 
now. And so they have to understand how the tools work. So they might have had plans, but they also need to know that there's options and they got to find those options, right? It says leaders who cling too inflexibly to a plan, stifle creativity and miss opportunities. How many times you've been working on a project, I don't care if it's for church, for school, for work, for home, and you'll be working on a project and you get partway down the road on it and then you're like, oh, well, I could do that too. If I, if, I, if I add that now, it'll only take me this much longer. If I try and do this later, it's gonna take me three or four times as long, right? And so you might consolidate the new project into the old project, add 10% working time to it, but save yourself overall on a big picture maybe 80% of the time, right? Because you're not redoing things twice. I know I may be talking crazy to some because I may have been disconnected right there. In my mind, I knew what I was trying to say. I hope, I hope I said it in a way that made sense. But it's don't miss opportunities because you're so focused on the plan. Always be open for an option. Um, he says, every day I would plan my work and work my plan. I even thought of myself as a man with the plan, the 10-year plan. I had it, a five-year plan, check, a two-year plan, on paper, in detail. Anybody that asked could see it, right? Um, it's good to plan ahead, but again, always make sure that you keep options. John's got a list of bullets that start on page 113. I'll read those bullets to you, right? The first bullet says, predetermine your course of action. Check. Uh, second one, lay out your goals. Adjust your priorities. Notify key personnel. That's huge. That's a, in corporate world, that gets skipped a lot. You as a leader might not realize who your stakeholders really are in a process. For instance, in my training program, I deal with a lot of service writers and service managers, but my actual customer is usually the dealer owner, right? So the dealer owner, the dealer principal is the one who buys the training for his staff, but then I end up working with the staff, right? So it's the same situation. You don't want to leave people out of the chain of communication. So again, it was predetermine your course of action, lay out your goals, adjust your priorities, notify key personnel, allow time for acceptance. It's another key thing that usually gets missed. A lot of times we go, hey guys, this is what we're going to do. All right, break, let's hit it. And you don't give people a chance to digest it, right? Remember, leaders, my favorite quote, right? Leaders see more than others do and they see before others do. So when you have people following you, they might not have the same rate of adoption to a new idea that you have. So that's okay. Allow for that, right? So allow time for acceptance and then head into action. As you head into action, you're going to want to expect problems and then adjust your plan. Okay. And then a daily review of your plans. So it's super important. And, and I've highlighted some other things here that talk about you know, uh, adjusting your plan and reviewing your daily plans, but that's covered in the bullets. And hopefully you, you get that and you track along with that. When you get uh, further back in the book here, we just talked about, bear with me, making, making plans but looking for options. The next one is place a high value on ideas. As a leader, you wanna have the plan and you wanna be able to say, here's where we are, this is where we're going. These are the steps to get there, right? It's good project management. That's good leadership. But you also want to have a warm bench of ideas. You don't want to be the guy that when staff or co-management asks you a question, you fall blank, right? When I would go to meetings at Suzuki, 
Um, I'd go to a conference room, eight, 10, 12, 15 people, whatever. I didn't give that room every idea I ever had in one sitting, right? I always made sure that I kept my input relevant to the discussion at hand and that I was applicable, right? And then some of those ideas that I had, they would percolate. They would sit on the back burner for a little bit as warm ideas. And then when the next meeting came or the next obstacle or the next, you know, crisis would pop up, we'd all get in the room and I'd, I'd still have, you know, fresh input ready to deliver. And I think that's important. People need to place a high value on ideas and then make sure they keep kind of a running inventory of stuff and always be ready to share when that sharing is important, right? So start gathering ideas, test every idea that you gather, right? Run it by some people, you know, don't hold everything so close to the chest, run some things by people, see what the feedback is. Analyze your failures, adapt other ideas. Uh, I will, if I'm doing some online marketing for one of my projects, I'll take a look at something. I'll say, oh, is that, is that spammy? Is that, does that show that it adds value? Did I ask the right question? Am I reaching the right pain point for my implied customer? Um, these things. And to know that I am hitting those marks, I may look at what other people in similar industries are doing with their social uh, marketing, right? And so, you know, always adopt other ideas and, and kind of see what other people are doing. Question all assumptions. It says assumptions are creativity killers. Don't assume something's a bad idea and nobody's going to do it, right? That's, that'll kill you every time, right? Always assume that there's possibility. Five, right? It's a whole new section here. Five, seek out and listen to different voices. As I was developing business plans as a younger man, uh, I would have what I thought were brilliant ideas, uh, brilliant. And I would type these things up and then, you know, with pride, I would look what I, you know, look what I have come up with, right? And then wonder why 10 people don't want to just write me checks and send me off to the bank so I can start my project. It's because I didn't take the time to listen to others. I didn't take the time to have a sounding board, to have a focus group, to do, you know, look at your successful design companies. I mean, people look at a company like Ducati with Italian design quality and they go, oh, how does, you know, how does Ducati constantly hit the market with something sexy and it sounds awesome and it looks so pretty and it, they have focus groups, man. They, they have people that, that have input to how things can work. Um, when the Diavel had come out, the, the X Diavel, Diavel X, when that bike had come out, it wasn't originally designed with a rear seat rest. And then they added the seat rest based on feedback, right? So there's things like that, that you always want to make sure that you do. Um, John has an acronym at this section of the book, so I'll share it with you. It says, I'm a firm believer in the team principle. Together, everyone accomplishes more, right? Team. Together, everyone accomplishes more. And so the idea there is to get people involved and have them as be part of that creative process for you. Um, six is take risks. I've already told you guys, uh, I consider myself, you know, a fairly high risk taker and other people in my circle may, uh, jump in and want to agree with that. But, um, I generally don't have a problem with trying something and I'm really not too afraid of looking stupid. Uh, I think that's just part of it. That's the other side of it, right? I'll try something, might make it, might not make it. Uh, when I jumped on to do this mastermind, for example, I didn't know that hundreds of people would end up seeing this. I thought, how can I add value to as many people as I can 
this is a great tool. Let's see what happens. And now it's got a fairly decent audience, right? So I'm, I'm super humbled, super blessed. I, and I'm super grateful that, that people care about what's being shared here. But uh, to me, it's, it was a risk because I could have looked really, really stupid. And instead, it's working out pretty good. Uh, live on the other side of yes. That's number seven. So John had an experience and he writes about it in the book. And so he had a meeting with somebody. Uh, one of those leaders was Larry Stockstill. Uh, he interrupted the conversation and, and John, the answer is yes. Cause John was looking for people to join in on a project, right? So recently I was casting a vision to a large group of leaders. There was a great sense of anticipation as I shared the possibilities and opportunities that could be before us. If we partnered together and join hands to accomplish this vision. And then after that session, I met in the green, in the green room with the top leaders of the organization, continuing to discuss the possibilities of working together. And this is where Larry Stockstill interrupted the discussion. He said, John, the answer is yes. Count me in. Whatever this means, I'm a yes. So many times I've been in a room with people that I admired or that had earned my buy-in. And before they even finished their presentation, I knew I was in, right? I don't even need to hear the next, you don't have to close me. You don't have to sell me. I'm in. I'm going to do this. I'm going to give it a shot. And it's funny. John asks, uh, John asks Larry Stockstill, you know, why did you interrupt and why did you, you know, so boldly say that you wanted to say, and he just says, I live on the other side of yes. That's where I find abundance and opportunity. And it's where I find the bigger and better self. That's huge. Um, as human beings, we all need to know what our threshold for pain is and pain being risk, embarrassment, you know, uh, lack of courage, things like that. And I see the time, 3.51, I got you, we're good. Um, and this little story here does a great job of explaining, you know, a grown man had realized on the other side of yes is where I find abundance and opportunity and it's where I become a bigger and be a, a better and bigger self. And that to me, it, that's, that's huge. If you know what atmosphere you're gonna find your most growth in and you pursue that uh, with all the energy you've got, more power to you, man, that's awesome. Uh, something else that Larry had, had written, uh, actually it was Lori Greiner, Greiner, I never say her name right. It's the lady from the Shark Tank. Uh, dear optimist, pessimist, and realist, while you guys were busy arguing about the glass of water, I drank it. Sincerely, the opportunist, right? So that's kind of a joke there. Uh, imagine opportunities everywhere. And I say this all the time. People are sick of it. I'm going to keep saying it. Whenever there's a disruption, whenever there is a paradigm shift in uh, societal expectation, which is during the shutdown, during the crisis, the lockdowns, whatever you want to call it. Um, I know so many people that are essential and working. Heidi and I work with a young adults group, and a lot of those are essential workers. You know, it could be in an auto parts store, fast food restaurant, whatever. They're considered essential and they're working. And life may not have had such a major change uh, for them. But culturally, there's been a huge shift. Uh, people working from home, staying from home, people that have had the time to join this call, for example, right? Because this would normally be during the workday. And so uh, when I look at this and I say, okay, um, where are the opportunities? Well, the opportunities are like what I'm doing with you guys right now, uh, working with email lists, contacting your old friends, you know, that may be laid off and maybe sitting at home. 
Um, this is a chance to rekindle relationships. This is a chance to, uh, in the power sports industry, I'm watching corporations shut down and not shut down closed. I'm watching them shut down vital pieces of their organization. And I'm not going to say names because it's more than one. There's a, there's a great many of them that are having uh, big layoffs and, and, and really turning things down. And it breaks my heart a little bit because during this time, this is a time of opportunity. If the big corporations were able to repurpose people, make them essential employees to go out and visit dealerships that have stayed open as essential companies in states that list them as transportation companies and essential, they could work on point of purchase displays. They could work on customer interaction processes. They could, uh, you know, help revamp service shops to make them more productive and efficient, and more profitable. And you say, well, who pays for that? What's, what's the kickback for that? Well, the payback is as the dealer, you're going to have a relationship built with the company that invested in your business, right? So it's, it's the investment of the future sale. It's the investment of the future relationship. That's one. Um, two, if a service department becomes more efficient, more productive, and more profitable, that means they're going to use more parts. And these distributors make a lot of their money on selling OEM parts, parts and accessories. And so if we can increase that business through the service department, that also creates additional revenue. So I keep going to these examples where I know people are getting sent home or they're being told that they're no longer needed or that they're going to be laid off and they could be repurposed and they could be used productively and efficiently and things that would help business. And in the power sports world, power sports, marine and automotive, customers generally don't like going to the dealer, right? The, the customer experience is, is flawed. And now more than ever, this is a great opportunity to have a reset on that and go, how can we improve the customer interaction process on a wholesale basis to make it easier to deal with, with dealerships from the customer perspective? Let's analyze that. Let's do this. Curbside pickup for motorcycles. Awesome. Uh, curbside drop off and pickup for boats and boat trailers. Awesome. You know, during the COVID crisis, everything has to be cleaned. So the, they could be charging for cleaning services, uh, detail services, uh, delivery, all kinds of stuff. And this is a time where we could meet the customer's needs, but instead we're choosing to be safe and we're choosing to be non-creative. We're taking the easy way out and we're laying people off and we are, we're being okay to not succeed. And I don't think that's the way God wired us. And some of you might not like the God talk when I put it into business like this, but I just don't believe that's the way I was created. I don't believe that's the way I was wired. I was wired to find success, help people and add value to people, not go home and pout. And so uh, now imagine opportunities everywhere. And to do that, you got to ask questions, you got to network and you got to take action, right? Those are the, the bullets right there. Ask questions, network, take action. And, and imagine those opportunities everywhere. Man, I've been putting myself on podcasts, email lists, everything I can. We go, we're down to four minutes. We got four minutes left, okay? Prepare for opportunities and activate your current opportunities. So you had to find opportunities, then you got to prepare for the opportunities, and then you have to activate your current opportunities. You know, when's the last time you went through your address book and you called everybody you knew just to find out how they were doing? I got a big address book. I'm guilty of it too. That's the point. That's why we're having this conversation with each other. You know, go through it. Call people up. Hey, how you doing? 
are you working? Did you get laid off? Are you working from home? Oh, is there anything I can do for you? Can I pray for you? Can I, you know, whatever it is that, that your belief system is, um, there's always a way to communicate with people. And during this time of being sequestered, people more now than ever are going to value those outreaches. Um, I've done some, what I think are some pretty creative things in communicating with uh, past employers and, and coworkers and uh, using a lot of the internet tools. And I encourage you to find ways to do that as well. Uh, at the very bottom of page 125, talks about getting out of your comfort zone. And I wanted to cover this before we closed out the session. And so now would be the time. It says comfortable isn't comfortable. You get that? Comfortable isn't comfortable. If you're overly comfortable, it breeds contempt within yourself because you're not doing what you were meant to do. Comfortable never got up before dawn. Comfortable won't get his hands dirty. Comfortable has nothing to prove. Comfortable can't get the job done. Comfortable doesn't have new ideas. Comfortable won't dive in head first. Comfortable is not the American dream. Comfortable has no guts. Comfortable never dares to be great. Comfortable falls apart at the seams. Don't get comfortable. He finishes up this chapter, uh, chapter six, with don't ever get comfortable. Make the shift to abundance. Get out on the edge, break new ground, seize opportunity, and get creative. And, you know, John inspires me with his writing. I hope that I am inspiring you by shrinking the content down, making it consumable verbally. And, uh, you know, looking at the people that sign in and the, and the numbers, I, I, th I think I'm hitting the mark on something. I would love comments. I would love some feedback. You can hit me up on a DM, PM, whatever. Uh, if you don't want to publish something publicly, if you think there's something I could do better, if you hate my Shimano jacket, just let me know. I like this jacket a lot. Um, but this thing really is to share time with you, add value to you, give me something to do during the shutdown, help me to work on my public speaking because public speaking is a passion of mine and how I look to uh, share myself and my skills with corporations after the shutdowns, right after the crisis. And I think that leadership through a crisis is absolutely huge. If you've got the ability to fill some of this leadership gap and you want some ideas on how to pursue more of a, of a leadership stance within your community, I encourage you to reach out to me. I really, really do. Uh, I've got some great resources on the Manana Namas side. Uh, the John Maxwell group gave me a great leg up on, on getting started on my leadership path. And I really encourage you to pursue this. I know that the last chapter talked about making sacrifices and stuff to be a leader, but it's worth it. It really is. And the relationships along the way uh, can't be replaced. So it's four o'clock. I am going to uh, dismiss anyone that doesn't want to stick around for prayer. Uh, I think it's important during these times, especially if you're a person of faith, that you you open up and that you pray with others before others and that you lend community to people that are looking for that. And as a person of faith, I'm going to do so. Uh, again, if that's not your thing, uh, thanks for hanging out. If you get a chance to, to share or do a watch party, that would be fantastic. I'd love your support and uh, have yourselves a great day and an awesome weekend. I'll see you next Tuesday at three o'clock when we do session seven. All right. Give you a chance to say goodbye. Okay. And for those of you that choose to uh, stick around, uh, I would like to say a quick prayer for us and, uh, and for the rest of the community and nation at large.
Father God, I thank you uh, so much for, you know, the responsibility, the care, the, the, the inspiration that, that you've given me to, uh, to share this work with a, will, a willing audience, with people that'll stick it out. And uh, Father, I know that sometimes uh, I rely on John Maxwell a lot. I look at, to him to be like my mentor. I look to him to be a, a guiding light for some of the other works that I create. And uh, Father, I thank you for putting him in my life, although he does not replace you. Father, I think about the uh, Bible study that Matt Mizell led yesterday online. And I think about uh, my relationship with Matt in New Mexico uh, when he was a youth pastor. And then we stayed in touch when he came to California. And now he's a pastor in New Mexico. And Father, I'm so thankful for the time that I had with him on that Bible study and how well it was done. And Father, I, I think about that and I pray about these times and I pray about the shutdowns and I pray about the lockdowns and I pray about the, the isolation that people might be experiencing. But Father, I also celebrate uh, this awesome technology that we have and the idea that people like me and Matt can connect states apart and discuss your word. Father, I'm so thankful. Thankful for this platform to share with others. Thankful uh, for the intelligence that you've gifted us to harness that. Father, I'm thankful for the time that family gets to spend together during this time. And Father, I pray for those that can't be together. And I pray for those that are sick. Father, I pray for those that are sick, even without the COVID-19. Uh, Father, there's all kinds of sickness out there. And Father, I, I pray for those that might feel lonely or might feel compromised or might feel left out. And I encourage us, Father, as a people to reach out to others, just to check in, just to say hi. Father, I think about Tammy from the uh, Speaker, Author, and Coaches Network. I think about her cause for suicide, and I think about how people must be feeling at this time. Father, I pray for their health. I pray for their well-being. I pray that they find people like Tammy to uh, help talk them off the ledge, as it were. And Father, I thank you for these moments of clarity. Father, I pray for those that didn't join the Zoom call that might have some input for their prayers. Anyone that's listening to this, Father, I just want to give a couple seconds over to that. Father, I thank you for your son. I thank you for our salvation. I thank you for Easter being right around the corner. And Father, I pray for these churches that are trying to do it remotely. Father, I pray that they bring your message to more people than ever. Because now you don't even have to get in your Easter best and jump in the car and get there. You can sit in the sofa in your underwear and watch church. Father, help us to find the benefits in all of this. In your name, Father, we do pray. Amen. Well, folks, uh, again, I thank you so much for the time. I thank you for the support. I, um, I hope that you're getting some value from this. I really, really, really do. And, um, you know, the replays are available in the Manana Namas Academy. I also take the audio out and put it on Anchor as a podcast. And the Zoom invite is up on most of my social channels. So if you want to join the Zoom and be live and have conversations with me in real time as we go through this book, uh, that's available too. Have yourself a great, great day. And uh, as I say, and it might sound corny, uh, I really do love you guys. And uh, make the best of it. Have a great weekend. Mañana no mas. Let's get it. In.